bless his name. We have so much to celebrate every Sunday morning. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, take them to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 53. As I told you last Sunday, we've been leading up to, uh, through Isaiah 53. And, and I was uh, with the intent of kind of on Easter attacking the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, uh, on Easter Sunday in Isaiah 53. Uh, but it is uh, admittedly not as overt. And so last Sunday felt led of the Lord to do something directly implicating of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But hey, you don't always just have to preach on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Like I said earlier, that's why we're meeting today and not Tuesday and not Friday. It's because on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the grave. So in reality, for the Christian church, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. And so we're going to continue in Isaiah 53 and we're going to direct our thoughts toward what Isaiah has to say about the resurrection or what is implied about the resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse number 8. Isaiah 53, verse number 8. <coughs> I got a frog in my throat. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We're going to continue our look today at the gospel, thank you Grayson, at the gospel according to Isaiah and we're going to look at the resurrection of the Lamb. We started out with the rejection of the Lamb. Jesus was refused by His people. We saw the redemption of the Lamb in verses 4 and 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgression. No doubt that's the redemption now I want us to look at the resurrection. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, Lord, we love you. We pray for your Holy Spirit. For he is the one that takes the word of God and illuminates our hearts and minds. We pray you give us wisdom. And, you would, and that Holy Spirit would point us to our God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father, who administered the sacrifice of His Son on our behalf. God, I pray that You would see, help us to see the rich implications of the resurrection of Jesus and what God has done for us in His Son. Prick hearts, Lord Jesus. Call us to deeper love, admiration, and service unto You. Help us to more wholly yield our lives to the One that has given so much for us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And amen. You know, 
prophecy is a really interesting study in the Bible. Some things that have been prophesied are dogmatically clear when comparing prophecy to history. We see that in the prophecies fulfilled of the coming of the Christ. Every Christmas we are reminded of those. The virgin shall conceive and O Bethlehem Ephrata, out of thee will come one whose goings are to everlasting. These prophecies we see fulfilled in the person of Jesus. They're clear. We can be dogmatic about those. But others are not so much. There are hints about events but are not completely fulfilled. Especially prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. All you got to do is go to the book of Revelation and you'll find dispute after dispute, argument after argument as to what these things mean, what they could mean. There's a lot of speculation, different viewpoints of the book of Revelation. And so this is, uh, some of it's given hints and are not completely clear. And this is uh, from us looking backwards through history and Scripture. Can you imagine how different these prophecies would have looked to those that penned them? How obscure they would look to those as God uses the combination of mental ability and divine revelation to cause them to pen these prophecies. You know, when thinking about prophecies and especially Old Testament prophecies, I've always been told that prophecy from the author's perspective is like looking at a line of mountain peaks. Imagine we have mountains all around us and if you were on top of one mountain and looking at successive other mountains down the valley and say you're on the Appalachian Mountains and you're looking from a sand mountain down through Alabama, you might see different peaks from one to the other as those mountains wind their way down into Alabama but what you wouldn't see would be the valleys in between them and some of them could stretch from for you know 20 30 40 miles between peak to peak so you don't see those but you do see the highlights and many believe that as these prophets of old as they, as they pen these prophecies that they're given holy spirit inf- insight into many of the peaks, but they don't see many of the valleys in between. You know, this may well be the case with Isaiah 53. You know, in this series, uh, I have called Isaiah 53 the gospel according to Isaiah. I'm not alone in this. Thomas Manton, a great Puritan author, said of Isaiah 53, this portion of Scripture may rather be called the gospel rather than the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, if it, because it is a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus was born, and if it is to be a gospel, then we must ask the question, where is the resurrection? Because no gospel account would be complete without a resurrection. I submitted to you, If there is no resurrection in your gospel, you don't have a gospel. You have a gospel that ends in a tomb, cold, dead, corrupted bones. You don't have good news. 
The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all contain the account of Christ's death on the cross, His burial, and three days later rising from the tomb. Now, I have to admit that as you read Isaiah 53, there is no overt, outright statement that this servant of Jehovah, this Messiah of Israel, in his prophetic vision, shows a rising, or he depicts, no, he outright states a rising from the dead for this servant of Jehovah. It does explicitly detail the life and the substitutionary death of Jesus. But here in in Isaiah 53, there's no direct statement of a resurrection. It seems as though the resurrection story of the servant of Jehovah is in one of those valleys that's just obscured from the view of the author. But it is here. It is indeed a gospel. It is inherent in the narrative. It is a presumed resurrection. The only way that Isaiah's prophecy makes sense is if the slaughtered Lamb of God was supernaturally raised again. As we look closely at 8 through 10 in this chapter, we can see this truth of a resurrection surface as it is surrounded by once again stories of the redemption of Jesus. Every person in this room can can witness the wonder of Jesus the Messiah's resurrection by laying hold to three facts of this resurrection foreseen in the prophecy of Isaiah. So I'm going to give you three facts that surround this resurrection. I'm going to get to its to its implied point, to where it it could only mean that a resurrection took place. But I want to start by looking at verses 8 and 9. And I want to show you the road to the resurrection. The road to the resurrection. Look at verse 8 and 9. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found, deceit in his mouth. Now it's plainly obvious that Isaiah can't get away from the sacrificial death of the Messiah. You know, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account, of the life of Jesus, there's so much there. Many of which tell of his early life. Some of them tell some of the early days of Jesus' life. Much of the Gospels is given to, to uh, the, the ministry of Jesus, the three and a half years in which he ministered. But And a and, and, and large lion's share of those Gospels is given to the final week of Jesus. But Isaiah... He just keeps pointing again and again overwhelmingly to the substitutionary death of Jesus. I mean, you would have thought that it would have ended in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. 
verse 6 at the end of it, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of his all. Isaiah's telling his story, substitution. He died for me. And yet he doesn't stop. He continues. You'd think that would have been enough in the story, but he continues on. Verses 8 and 9, we're taking down the road to the resurrection, which once again makes its way by the cross. Notice, first of all, in verse number 8, we see his sentence. It was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? These phrases are in reference to the trial of Jesus. That legal system of the Hebrew people, as outlined in the Mosaic Law, was to tip the scales toward mercy. You remember last year when we went through the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus, we we looked in very much detail at the trial of Jesus. We looked at some of the traditions and some of the laws surrounding uh, judicial rulings that were to come from the Sanhedrin. They were always tilted toward mercy. They were always tilted toward, uh, toward in favor of that one that is charged. But not so with Jesus. That is not the case with Him. The word taken in verse number 8 is the idea of being seized, of being hurried away. Jesus was ramrodded through a sham of a trial. He was arrested and tried in the dark of night. He was beaten to coerce His testimony. False witnesses were brought against Him. All of which were in direct violation of how the judicial rulings of the Sanhedrin were to be carried out. All these irregularities caused Isaiah to burst out. Who shall declare his generation? Meaning, who's going to say something? This is a travesty. If anyone is guilty in this text, it is they. And if anyone is guilty in the gospel, it is us. It is not him. He was ramrodded through a mock trial, pronounced guilty when he was the only one that was innocent. His sentence is referred to here. His suffering. Verses 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. What was the intent of the trial? What did the Jews want by, by pronouncing a guilty verdict Rending their garments in, in, in a, a magnificent display of their disgust. What did they want to be the outcome? They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him killed. Pilate had Jesus brutally scourged and whipped. And yet, that was not enough for the Jewish people. He wanted to appease them. Pilate took Jesus and had him brutalized in a scourging and brought him back out and say, look, here's your king, all beaten, beyond recognition, thinking that would be enough, that would suffice the crowd. But they were so bloodthirsty, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. That's when Jesus was taken and cried aloud, crucified on the cross, and after three hours cried out, it is finished, and gave up his ghost. His life was taken. He died there on the cross. We might cry, what an outrage. What an injustice. He was the lamb. He had done nothing wrong. But Isaiah reassures us 
that what had taken place was for our benefit. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He died for you and I. Once again, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus is clear. He died for you. He died for me. He gave His blood, His life, His all. 700 years it was, it was called for, envisioned by the prophet, seen clearly through the telescope of prophecy. And here and later on in the Gospels, in the time, and the fullness of time, Jesus did give His life for us, His sentence, His suffering, His sepulcher. Verse number 9. He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence neither was any deceit found in his mouth you know a lot of things have been said about this verse some believe that the words indicate uh, that states that Joseph of Arimathea that you remember Joseph of Arimathea he was the secret disciple on the Sanhedrin that went to Pilate that wanted the body of Jesus do you know what happened to people that were crucified in that day? They were left on the cross, dead for days until their body basically fell from the cross and dogs devoured the body of the person executed. They were not given a burial. And that's why Joseph Arimathea, he stepped up. Jesus, this teacher, Jesus this special miracle worker that all, all that followed him saw the significance of who he was would not allow him to suffer such, a, such a, uh, 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 an indignity as his body being devoured by dogs and, and no permanent. So, so he volunteered to take the body of Jesus. But many believe that this text here may be an indication that he was a wicked but a rich man. Some have said that he, the he in this text, is the Jews that condemned Jesus. They wanted him to be buried like the wicked, thrown onto a trash heap. I just believe it is a statement concerning his death. The finality of it. Because here it is clear, the only thing you put in a sepulcher, the only thing you put in a grave is someone that is dead. Isaiah is making it clear. He was wounded. He was oppressed. He was scourged. He was chastised, beaten, and bruised. And he died as a result of those injuries. In our day and time, you know as well as I do in certain liberal circles that this, this has always been a point of contention. Some believe that Jesus merely swooned and he didn't die at all. And that his disciples somehow stole the body, which, as I said last week, defies a logic. But they stole the body and was somehow nursed him back to, he back to health. But the emphasis here in Isaiah 53 is that he died. He was buried. You know, to be honest... It says in verse number 8, he was taken from prison from generation to declare he was cut off out of the land of the living. No, verse number 9, and he made his grave with the wicked. To be honest with you, when Jesus died, if he was buried 
anywhere on this planet, he'd be buried with the wicked. Because every one of us, every one of us are the wicked. The whole descendancy of Adam is the wicked. In verse 12, Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. We'll get to that in succeeding, uh, succeeding messages next week. He was, he was numbered with the transgressors. So not only was he numbered with the transgressors, he was buried with the transgressors. After, and then I look at in verse number 9, the last phrase, he did no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. After all they had tried to do, Jesus was still spotless. The spotless Lamb of God. Something that you and I could not say about our Savior. This is the road to resurrection. Once again, Isaiah's taking us through what happened to Jesus. Not only was he whipped, scourged, condemned, beaten, pulverized, but he, he died as a result. Isaiah's clear, he died. The prophecy of Isaiah doesn't have a gaping hole in it when it comes to whether Jesus died. He's clear, he was put in a grave. He died, he died. The road to the resurrection. Then the reasons for the resurrection. Look at verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. One of the most fascinating statements that Isaiah has made thus far. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Many people are puzzled over the fuss that is made with Christians all around the world when they celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Especially at Easter. Here, although it is waning in, in the United States, here in the United States, it is still somewhat seen as a day of a Christian holiday, somewhat observed to many degrees, but many from the outside looking in have no idea why such a fuss is made about it. They look at the resurrection story as some kind of fairy tale, like the Easter Bunny. But our gospel, our message, our hope stands and falls on this event. If someone could bring us the body of Jesus and we could verify that it is indeed Jesus of Nazareth, our faith would come crashing down and I would never darken the door of a church again. If it was proved that I was preaching a fairy tale, I'd never darken the door of this place again. Paul said as much. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, I, I, I quoted this last week, but it bears repeating. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. You are still in your sins. But what are the reasons for the resurrection? It gets back to his death. The truth of the resurrection begins with the truth of Jesus' death. Isaiah gives us insight into this death from the divine perspective. Here, in the previous verses, 8 and 9, we're given our perspective of his death. But in verse number 10, we're given divine perspective. What does the death of Jesus look like to God the Father. First of all, it's the Lord's delight. I read that a moment ago. I said just moments ago, it is a it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is the most, most unfathomable statement in, in our passage, in our chapter. What could please the Lord? Our despising of Jesus, 
Our despising of Jesus could not please God. Our disesteeming of Jesus did not please the Lord. Our wounding Him, our forsaking Him, our repression of Him, our affliction of Jesus did not please the Lord. Our slaughter of Jesus did not please the Lord. No, it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The word bruise here doesn't mean like a smack on the arm and cause a cause a, a slight coloration in the skin. It means to pulverize. It means to beat into shivers. I tell you of all the words in this chapter, this is the most puzzling. No father, no father takes pleasure in the chastening of his children. All we can do is stand in awe of God's love for you and me. Please the Lord to bruise him. Why? He was beaten for our transgression. He's ruined for our iniquity. His chastisement was our peace. The only logical reasoning is that God does indeed love us so great that he would breathe, he would bruise, he would pulverize his own son for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves us so much he gave his son. And Isaiah says that he was pummeled to shivers. It's the Lord's delight, the reason for the resurrection. The Lord's design. Verse 10, he hath put him to grief. Let us remember that this was not the Jewish people that put Jesus to death on the cross. It was not the Roman governor that put Jesus to death on the cross. It was not the Greek culture that put Jesus to death on the cross. It was God the Father. Ultimately, the Roman government, the Hebrew Sanhedrin, the Greek culture of the time are all pawns in the hand of the heavenly sovereign Father. It was the Father that put Jesus there. It was the Father he hath put him to grief. The Father did this. The word grief indicates to be in affliction, to be laid out, to put to pain. God's plan to sacrifice Jesus was not in reaction to what the Jewish leaders had planned or, or what the Romans were bent on doing. It was not in reaction to what Isaiah had written as though Isaiah is forcing the hand of God. It is not even in reaction to Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. No, long before the foundations of the world, God had promised, promised a purpose. God had designed that His Son would willingly lay down His life for our sin. I'm sure you've all heard or hope you have the song, When He Was on the Cross, I Was on His Mind. Indeed, that has to be true. Well, long before the cross, long before creation, before all things, you and I were on His mind. The Lord's delight, the Lord's design. Notice the, Lord, the Lord's demands. Ten. Look at verse number 10. When thou shalt make His soul an offering for sin. What took place on the cross was far more than a Jewish carpenter turned preacher being put to death. 
in this phrase we see God in the, himself in the role of a priest making an offering. You and I could not meet the demands of God's law. We are sinful. We are transgressors. We have turned everyone to our own way. Isaiah 6 tells us that. Our mouths are filled with deceit. Uh, uh, we, are, we, are, we have done violence to God's law. We are, we are broken by sin. We are monsters of iniquity. But Christ, as the Lamb without spot and without blemish, was offered in our stead. I can't get over how verse 10 is from God's perspective. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt see his soul an offering for sin. God is offering his son on our behalf. Some of this is shadowed in the life, in the, in the climax, I would believe, of Abraham's moment in which he, he took his son Isaac to the mountain to slay him. Remember how that went? Uh, Isaac willingly, he could have easily overpowered his much older father, but he willingly laid himself down. And Isaiah and, and, and Abraham, he takes the knife and he raises the knife and all of a sudden the angel Lord stops the knife. You know why? Because God said, I'll be the one to do that. You slay this son, he will remain dead. You slay this son, it will be for naught. I know that you love me. I know that you believe me, Abraham. But I'll not let you do that. I'll do that myself. And thousands of years later, God did just that. He slaughtered his own son as a priest on the altar of his righteousness for our sins. Uh, but Christ, as the Lamb without spot and without blemish, was offered in our stead. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. God is the only one that can make this offering. God is the only one that can design something acceptable to His righteousness to be a substitute for us. He was made an offering for sin. My offering for sin. Paul emphasizes that in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him, he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Of course the offering of a blood sacrifice for sin has always been around. Since the days of Adam's fall in the garden. Do you remember that? How that God took animal skins and used them to cover, to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. In that, in that transgression, there, in that transaction, there is a precedent set that sin must be dealt with by the blood of an animal. Um. Abel, Abel mimicked this. He gave the sacrifice acceptable to God by the blood of the animal. Not by the, by the fields of wheat as his brother Cain. But Abel offered the blood sacrifice. 
but it's taught, uh, taught to man when God slaughtered these animals and all the way through the, the law of Moses. The law of Moses codified how these blood animal sacrifices were given. You know, when I was a child, and you know, I think children, they work through more than you think in these services. And I remember sitting in the pews listening to the messages that would refer to these animal sacrifices. And how preachers would say those animals died like Jesus died on the cross. And I would always wonder to myself, well, if Jesus died and was raised from the grave, if these animals depict the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus died, buried, rose again, why don't these animals come back to life? I think that in my mind. If it's supposed to be an image of that, how come their story ends in the fire? Their story ends with their blood sprinkled. How come they don't come back to life again? It wasn't until much later that I realized that the sacrifice of these animals happened over and over and over again. Why? Because, as Hebrews says, it is not possible for the blood of goats and lambs to take away sin. But Jesus, when He had offered Himself, was raised from the grave to be a once and for all atonement. That's why these animals weren't raised again. They did not really take away sin. They only postponed the judgment of sin. Year by year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, year by year, year by year, leading to the ultimate sacrifice of God's Son. And Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and quickened by the Spirit. Hebrews 7.25 says that He ever liveth to save to the uttermost. He is an ever living, one sacrifice, ever living, able to save Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's eternal declaration of satisfaction in the single redemptive death, on, uh, death of His own Son. It's God's stamp of approval. The road to resurrection, the reason for the resurrection, then the results of the resurrection. You know, I wonder what was going through the mind of Isaiah as he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned verse number 10. Look at verse number 10 with me. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering sin it is, it is written with such finality just previously it said he was in a grave with the wicked he has made an offering offerings don't get back up offerings are dead they're burned they're dissected life will never enter them again and then one comma one comma changes everything he made his soul an offering of sin. Notice this. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. What is Isaiah seeing here? 
He's seeing, first of all, the people of his descendancy. He shall see his seed. One moment, he is dead in the grave with the wicked and offering for sin. The next moment, he is seeing his offspring. Dead men don't live to see the seed of their family. Dead men don't live to see their great-grandchildren or their great-great. They don't see them. The word uh, here, when he says, uh, the word uh, here, he says, he shall see his seed. The word means children, posterity, progeny. From the moment of that empty tomb at the breaking of that resurrection morn, there has been a succession of belief upon Jesus. The Bible is clear. Those that believe upon the Lord Jesus are become sons and daughters of God. To as many as them, for John 1.12, to as many as received them, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Jesus, Jesus saw that little flock in that day following the resurrection. After his ascension, he saw the explosive growth of the family of God through the book of Acts. Down through the successive centuries, he has watched as his own have been brought from every corner of the globe. He is looking this morning and seeing the seed of his offspring. He looks this morning upon us. The people of his descendancy, the prospect of his destiny. He shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice the prospect. Jewish leaders thought that this Jesus movement would die along with his body on a Roman cross. But after that resurrection morn, God prolonged the days of his dear son. He shall live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He hath prolonged His days. He that was from eternity past, that died in 33 A.D., shall be and raised again thereafter, shall live forevermore into all eternity. Over the years of my ministry, I have read, studied, preached through, and listen to other men of God preach through the book of Revelation. And the more I know and study that book, the more I realize that this world is heading to a, to a destiny with God. Whether saint or sinner, this, would, this, would, this world is heading to an encounter with God where Jesus shall reign forever and ever and ever and His kingdom will have nowhere. He shall see His seed and prolong His days. Notice lastly the prosperity of His dominion. Verse number 10, He shall prolong His days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. There are some in our day that are very negative when it comes to the church. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm going to tell you what, nothing comes in popularity as far as a podcast is concerned than an in-depth look at the fall and collapse of a church, a ministry, 
something that has the title of Christian upon it. People love to revel in it, to watch it. And they may be saying, boy, I tell you, this world is, uh, is so ungodly and this church is following right down the path with it. The church is going down. I don't know how much more of this, the, of this uh, the church can take. Listen, people of God, you can be sure that the church of the living God is not in the hands of liberal theologians. It's not in the hands of, of investigative podcasters. It's not in the hands of atheists, agnostics, and, and pagan, demonically charged religions of this world. It's not held captive by the latest Pew Research polls or the latest media expose of ministry scandal. It's not held captive by the, by the world consciousness that maybe the church is falling away. No. Everything that has to do with you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, everything is held in God's hands. Church of Jesus Christ, you're held in God's hands. I will build my church, Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just like that little church. You know, there's so many, so many things about those little children's songs that we used to sing when we were little. That is so theologically sound. He's got the whole world in his hand. Do you remember that? He's got the whole world. He's got you and me, brother, in his hand. He's got you and me, sister, in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. His hand. The church will prosper. The church will always be. Notice the phrase, it speaks of prosperity. This word means to push forward, to burst out, it refers actually to a corn of wheat. It's placed into the ground that bursts up in fruitfulness. You remember Jesus talking about that exact same thing? Isaiah 12 and verse 24, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Isaiah 53 verse 9, I mean verse 10 in its final phrase is a echo of what Jesus would say about his own resurrection. It shall prosper. It shall burst forth into life. Jesus in John 12 is obviously speaking of his own death on the cross and that his death will bring life to many. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus will bring new life to men, women, boys, and girls all over the globe, a prosperity of the good news of Jesus is found. Does, does Isaiah 53 just overtly come out and say, He is risen, as He said. No, no. But it's there nonetheless. The only way it makes sense is for the one that was crushed, the one that was pulverized, raised to the grave to see his own progeny to have his days prolonged the resurrection is there long before Jesus was born his death was prophesied Isaiah looked through the telescope of divine illumination and saw the Lamb of God dying for your sins and for mine but he also saw the Lamb rise again and saw his seed prosper throughout the whole earth and saw his days prolonged 
He is looking back. He is looking on this morning. And the question that gets back to verse number 1. As God looks down upon us with His resurrected Son by His side, the question still echoes in verse number 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I am here this morning to declare unto you the generation of Jesus. The life of Jesus. The death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And I ask you, have you believed this report? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed unto you that you believe the gospel and and have been saved? If you have it, today's the day. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord this morning. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here this morning, you've never been saved. Jesus not only was prophesied to die 700 years before it ever happened, He was prophesied to be buried, numbered with the transgressions, buried with the wicked, but He was also prophesied to see his days again, to prolong his days, to have life beyond his death. Embrace that today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus before it's too late. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that you would remind us of the truth of the resurrection through the prophecy of Isaiah and we would live our lives according to that truth. God, you are your son is alive. Your son is seeing generations come to himself. May we be a part of that. God, may we be truth tellers, declarers of this good news. God, I pray for those that may be lost. God, I pray their eyes would be open to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Page number 258, Christ arose. 258, let's sing and declare this this, uh, truth. That Jesus is alive. 258. One, maybe two verses, and then we'll leave. Christ, uh, Christ arose.